Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 430. And I've hyped, hyped this episode a bit because, because we were trying to record it for like a year. And then we did record it and it proper delivered. I'm joined today by Emma Debiri, who's an author, um, an activist, and someone who's basically taught me a lot. <laughs> her her book, What White People Can Do Next, and don't panic if you're listening to this and you're white, it's it's an intentionally um, provocative and challenging t- title. You'll hear about it. Don't panic. Don't run away. You're who needs to, to, to listen to this as much as anyone if you're feeling uncomfortable. I promise it won't be an uncomfortable listen. But yeah, her book blew me away. I first heard her on Blind Boys podcast, which is what, if you don't know about the Blind Boy podcast, then you're missing out. It's one of the best podcasts in the world. And that made me get the book and I read the book and I loved it and I've reached out to Emma and we were going to do a podcast, I think kind of end of 2020 maybe or beginning of 2021 and then just loads of hecticness. So we ended up lining it up for we had this chat start of December I think and it was amazing and I think you're going to really enjoy it it got me excited for what's next I uh, because I enjoyed the books so much I had to be really careful not to just be like so tell us chapter one (laughs) and now chapter two because it's that good but yeah I think you're going to enjoy this and it's got me excited for all that's ahead as well as she not moves her focus but maybe broadens some of her focuses still with the same kind of end goal and culprits i guess uh but yeah anyway if you want to support the podcast head to patreon.com forward slash scroobius pip or head over to speech development and get merch get all sorts of goodness but for now this is episode 430 of the distraction pieces podcast with emma debiri Right, I'm joined today by Emma Debiri. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Are you well? Is everything a bit hectic at the moment? Every everything everything is a little hectic. I've just moved house and I've got the painters and decorators in, so I'm just kind of like between rooms. But yeah, things are things are calming down a bit. We're getting there. Yeah, I like to hear it as long as it's all calming down. Um we've been lining this chat up for a while, so I'm really excited to talk, but kind of in the times since we were first talking, everything's gone a bit crazy, even aside from moving house <laughs> and general life stuff. So how's that all been, I guess? Like, since the book came out, all the the kind of demand that, that you're in, and, and how do you find the balance of choosing the right things to go and do, where you're going to be, you know, a valued voice adding to the conversation and where you're just there to be shouted at or or, or used as a as a ignition substance? Oh, the world's gone. The world's gone crazy in that way. I, I, I actually just thought you meant initially, like more generally. Yeah, um, oh no, I did. I was initially, watching yeah. the news last night, and I mean, it's been peak for years and years yeah. and years. But last night, I was just like, "Now this is actually just all too much." Like, what are we 
hurtling towards yeah it was just cataclysm after cataclysm um so yeah it feels like we're in very like wild and unstable times i wouldn't say unprecedented because i'm sure there's been you know maybe unprecedented actually because of the imminent i guess threat and crisis of of global warming so maybe that is actually what makes this moment unprecedented yeah um so how do i cope with it all um Oh gosh, and how do I choose what to do? Yeah, it's 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 um I guess it's difficult. I feel like I can usually tell if something is going to be more sensationalist and surface level, or if somebody is inviting me to have a conversation because they 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 want to kind of it's not about sensationalism, you know. Although that sometimes there are things that I will do because even though on the on face value, you know, if I turned down a lot of stuff for time and also just because like of wanting to avoid sensationalism, but also there are certain opportunities I feel whereby you might be asked about something that is quite superficial or shallow, but you still have an opportunity to speak to like a huge audience. Yeah. So you can kind of, um, you know, take those moments and talk about what it is that you want to talk about rather than necessarily what you were asked about, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah, it's just about kind of like weighing it all up. and Using the platform and steering it in the direction that you maybe exactly. need it to go in. Um, yeah. Well, your book that caught my attention, um, or I first heard, I thought I'd first heard about you on the Blind Boy podcast. I'm a big fan of Blind Boy. I think he's great. I think he's he's so good. Um, he's fantastic. And, and you had a really good conversation on there. But when I got the book, I realised there was a lot of f- f- familiarity in it and I recognised it from Instagram. So there was, it kind of started <laughs> as an, as an Instagram thing and it's called what white people can do next. And you talk early on about the title being, Oh, I can't remember if it's in the book or on the podcast about the title being part kind of pr- practical r- r- resource and part provocation as such to mm-hmm. kind of grab attention, g- g- mm-hmm. grab people's attention and draw them in. And then what, comes is a really reasoned and researched and articulate kind of the discussion of history and and the future as such so thank you how was that as a kind of initial thing of of, of selecting that that kind of controversial title to go <laughs> right again as you were saying about getting the platform and then using it to speak it feels a, a similar a connection there grabbing the yeah, attention yeah, going, yeah. now you're angry let me explain <laughs> now you're angry or now you actually have an expectation even if you're not angry you have an expectation that this is going to be one thing yeah but in actual fact it's quite another thing and I'm almost kind of like riding against the thing that you that that you that you might think it is it is not an instruction manual you know, kind of for people racialized as white to say, you know, if you do these three things, we're going to, um, we're going to like resolve racism by the end of, you know, 2021. But the title was inspired, I guess, by like a a couple of different things. So um, one of the main things that I'm trying to do in the book is to challenge racism you know, to to challenge racism without reifying the racial categories, black and white. And 
explaining to people the way in which those are, I mean, the consequences of those categories, those racial categories, black and white, are very real and present. Mm -hmm. But the categories themselves are ones that are socially engineered, that are invented and continuously, you know, reinvested in each generation to sustain this architecture of race that we continue to live under and that we have lived under since, you know, the 17th century and European European expansion into um, well, European expansion and colonialism when these categories were invented. So it was really important to me that um, I, you will kind of hear people say, oh, race is only a social construct. You've started to hear that being said more regularly in the past few years. Mm-hmm. However, often when you like interrogate, when you go a little bit further than that, people don't necessarily know exactly what that means and often you know yeah. i've heard yeah. people that they agree with say that and it's kind of like yeah of course that's right mm-hmm. but that's the bit that blew my mind the most the and it's the thing i've kind of regurgitated the most is learning that race was literally invented in in the 1660s as a way of controlling slaves essentially and, and differentiating and, and 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 kind of yeah making it a a class thing and a yeah putting a difference between the races and the the bit you talk about where it was at that point kind of to divide the people that they were calling black and the irish who were also indentured slaves in in many parts at that at that point but was to give them that divide of right black slaves could never go any further can never move yeah. above this white slaves have an opportunity to one day progress yeah well separator. just 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 to be like just to be really clear and to make that distinction yeah. the irish were never slaves um the form of chattel slavery that um people of african descent were kept in bondage under was one that denied you any recourse to any basic rights any legal yeah. rights any human rights, and that also condemned you in perpetuity to slavery. So not only were you enslaved, but your children's children's children would be enslaved. Whereas with the Irish, and it's not the Irish just generally, it's specifically, that example I use is specifically in the colony of Barbados and specifically in that um, historical timeframe, you know, in that period of the mid 1600s and there are Irish indentured Mm labourers and the life of an indentured labourer while distinct you know the 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 outcomes for an indentured labourer you know while 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 distinct from that of somebody who's enslaved we're still pretty shit you know it wasn't it wasn't a good it wasn't a good life but the period of indenture was usually like you know a set period of time like seven years Granted, some people wouldn't survive the seven years. It's a pretty brutal life. But if you did, you were free after seven years, you know. And what happened was in that early period in the colony, the indentured Irish and the kidnapped Africans and people of African descent um, who were working on farms of English 
land owners and Scottish landowners, you know, actually saw those landowners as a common enemy. You know, they were both yeah. being exploited by them. After a number of uprisings, these slave codes were introduced that basically stripped the people of African descent who become this is when you kind of see that r- racialization as mm. as black people although the the word that's not the word that's used at the time and the invention of the white race um that serves a number of purposes but in in relation to what you've just asked me about one of those purposes is to create this immutable difference between those indentured irish who would have had no sense of themselves as white people or of having any kind of shared identity with those with that English landlord class who also wouldn't have seen themselves as white people or or seen themselves as having any sort of shared identity with the indentured Irish. But what the idea of whiteness did was to say, you know, this, you constitute a group with a shared identity who is inherently superior to this other group. And what that did was kind of shut down those potential like coalitions or solidarities emerging between the kind of indentured Irish and the enslaved Africans because they saw their fates and fortunes as more, you know, in alignment with what they now came to understand as other white people. And that idea from Barbados spreads, you know, um, it doesn't just spread as an idea. It's actually introduced and enacted through a set of laws, these slave codes that just make this really, really brutal, draconian world for people who become racialized as black with all of these kind of subsequent advantages and, 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 and privileges for people who are who are racialized as white, even though their immediate circumstances, you know, might not be great if they're indentured servants. But the the promise of whiteness, you know, is um is there for them. And from yeah, from Barbados, we then see it in Jamaica and then shortly afterwards in the English colony of Virginia. And this is even this predates the United States. The United States hasn't been invented yet. And similarly, there's an uprising between Africans and indentured English who um, come together and there's a there's a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion, where they fight together again against that English elite landlord class. And that's you know, terrifying because there's more of them. So they're like this, it really threatens the status quo. And they're like, this can't happen again. So again, they introduce those slave codes and they bring in that idea of whiteness and blackness, whiteness with its inherent superiority and blackness allegedly with its inherent inferiority. And that kind of leads us to where we are today. <laughs> That's the yeah. beginning of it all. <laughs> it's so, it's so, it was so mad to read about. Number one, the kind of the bribery of hope that is mm-hmm. essentially saying to the white indentured servants or, or that, yeah, you're being treated appallingly, but you might not, kind of like down the line. You're not being treated as badly as these people. Yeah, yeah. And also you are white. So, you know, and then some of those people, you know, there's different outcomes. I mean, some kind of died in indentured servitude, mm-hmm. but others went on to be, you know, landowners and slave yeah. owners themselves because those opportunities are were available to them. Yeah, and 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 again, just the fact that in in your head you kind of like, well, r- racism came about and it's horrible and this that. But it's like the fact that race was invented for racism. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's it's not a thing that just <laughs> happened. It's that that's what race was invented for. It's, yeah, it was to control these different people and to and to separate them. That bit was just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. It's, it's it's crazy, right? We we because we just don't know that. That's like not that's not common knowledge. And so one of my concerns about a lot of the kind of a, a particular 
strand of anti-racism that one sees recently and is very much like kind of has its is a lot of it's online um you know that kind of focuses on interpersonal privilege and allyship is that a lot of that it takes white and black as though they are foundational truths and then kind of moves on from that place and I'm like no you're missing a step in order to really undo this thing people there has to be kind of mainstream a wide stream wide streams I'd even word a mainstream (laughs) a widespread um, understanding of not only the fictitious nature of these categories but why and why they were invented and the historical period that they were invented in the function that they serve and I don't think we will ever truly create the anti-racist world that, that we desire unless we do some serious work we, can, we can't keep we can't keep reinvesting in that kind of truth status of race. You know, even in conversations about anti-racism, I'm seeing people talking as though black and white have a biological or biologically um, consistent and stable categories, you know, and that idea that they are is one of the foundational notions of racism. So we can't kind of like continue to perpetuate the same system and think that it will overcome the problem, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And I I really think a greater understanding of this kind of history would help a lot of people in where we are now. Things like people getting so defensive over terms like white privilege white privilege makes sense when you know this history because it's not again those those irish indentured in servitude were in such bad conditions they might not live out their seven years but they still have the privilege of being white because that was a defined thing and a difference and i think we struggle a lot with bad labels or or vague labels i guess i did i did a podcast on on the defund the police movement with uh professor alex vitali and dr adam elliott cooper and that was because i was like when you actually know what it's about it's almost undeniable but as a right. as as a term de- de- defund the police people get well what are you going to do when someone gets attacked who are you going to ring <laughs> and again <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was beautiful even hearing those arguments broken down of going well the attacks already happened so what does it matter who I ring? It's not going to. It's not going to undo the attack. Like what's it going it, to? It's not the biggest deal who, who I ring in that situation. It's but yeah, and just things like that. I guess terminology is. I think we've got to a point where social media activism is so high that people will accept things that they like the sound of or argue against things they don't like the sound of without looking a lot deeper than that. Yeah, which is kind of as you were saying with the the kind of um, race is a is a social structure. It's like yeah, but no, why you're saying that and where that comes from and yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, further education. Even even with like so, you you've actually given like a good example there of the yeah the 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 huge relative privilege you know of the um, indentured Irish. Um, via the the enslaved Africans. But for me, when I first encountered the term white privilege, I might have heard it before, but the first time I remember like being very aware of the the terminology and where where it was coming from was 
probably like 2010, 2011. And it comes from Peggy McIntosh in 1998. She's a, a white liberal, like American scholar. And she wrote this um, checklist called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And it's about white privilege. And when I came across that check, maybe it was earlier than that. I think this was around the time that I was starting to see it like be used more in kind of activist spaces. Mm -hmm. It hadn't really like fully just gone like mainstream yet, but that was coming shortly afterwards. And when I first encountered it, I was just like, oh yeah, this is great. This names this thing that I've thought about for like a really long time. And I would think about it in terms of like my experiences, like vis-a-vis like my white Irish friends. Obviously, I I grew up in Ireland in a time where there was like no kind of like diversity like in Ireland. So, yeah, I I, I kind of had that on my list to talk about. But but because a friend of mine, Moose Rotwonga, his his family will move to Ireland for a period. He was like very white and very Catholic, which fitted with his like his quite religious family in one way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not in the other way, because it was like really stood <laughs> Where out. Where was he so, yeah. from? I think he's he's Ugandan originally, and then they moved to England, and then had a period here, and his dad's work moved, and he moved to Ireland, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like it, like it's it's still a very white country, but like not in the way it was when I was gro- when I was growing yeah. up. Like I was the first black person that many people met. I know that because they would um, share that announcement mm-hmm. with me. And like, if if I saw another black person, yeah, it was like something of an event, you know, I'd be like, (laughs) I'd probably actually like run across the street. Like if it was, I remember like I saw, I saw another black girl at a disco when I was about 14 and I literally like ran across the dance floor (laughs) to like introduce myself to her and also ask her about her hair. I love it. Bigger than the, the, (laughs) uh, like I'd say about 10 years ago, anytime I saw someone else with a big beard, there'd be at least a nod. Now I'd break my neck. I'd break my neck. There's yeah, too many, right. but right. <laughs> it's everywhere. But yeah, that, that excitement of acknowledgement and kinship in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I also think sometimes, sometimes I would, you know, I'd see somebody and I'd be like, oh, hi. And they just kind of be looking at me like, who's this weird kid? <laughs> yeah. Why is she saying hi to me? I don't know. But the point I was making, gosh, what was it? It was about, oh yeah, so white privilege. So what was it that I wanted to say about it? It was when you first heard the phrase yes. in, in the active activist kind of Thank circles. You. Thank you. So I was like, yeah, it names this freedom, you know, that my friends have. You know, my friends would go to Australia. Australia is a place that, like, you know, loads of Irish, young Irish people go. Yeah. And I'd be like, mm, I don't want to go to Australia. I was just like, there were just so many things that for, for, for issues to do with, like, what I thought my experiences would be there. But also for, you know, their treatment of like their indigenous people. It just really, really didn't appeal to me. But all my friends would just go and have this like amazing time. And then they'd go yeah. to like parts of like they'd go to like, you know, parts of America and have a particular experience that I was like, if I go, that's not gonna be that's not gonna be my experience. Mm. Or I remember like they everyone would go to like Berlin in the summer when I was like a teenager to like the love parade, and I'd be like, I'm not like I'm just not going. Like I was too I was actually too scared to go to very, very white spaces, give or countries, you know, or cultures, given what my experiences had been growing up. So from a young age, there was a distinct difference. I remember like all my friends would go to Berlin and I'd be like, right, I'm going to Atlanta. I'm going to like the blackest place that I can find. So I would like to set off. I mean, I had family there, but um, white privilege to me was, you know, this ability to just like move through the world 
as an unracialized person, because even though whiteness is, is a racial category, it's not presented as a racial category. It's actually just presented as the norm. These are just white it's people the, aren't... It's the default, isn't it? Yeah, yes. exactly. White people yeah. aren't white people. They're just people. Everybody else is like a black person or like a brown person or, mm. you know, or just how it was until, until, until very recently. So when I first encountered... Um, Peggy McIntosh's list it named lots of that stuff and it was just like yeah basically like you know the privilege of moving through the world unencumbered by race and I was just like I'm so happy that this um you know that she's 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 named and articulated all this and it's starting to be we have this language and we have this um way of uh this shorthand for expressing all of this but I mean fast forward to now and the way white privilege and privilege is being applied is quite like seemingly like untethered from a lot of that. And I feel like that way of moving through the world as an unracialized person, as a person racialized as white, that's not something that can be con- con- transferred. Mm. That's something that is embodied. That's, that's, a, that's like an embodied thing. You know, it can't be transferred to somebody who's not racialized as white. Yeah. So I'm like, all of these kind of demands of people to like, you know, this, these transfers of privilege. I'm like, well, that that one can't be transferred. And then some of the other demands were, you know, to, I know, kind of demands for opportunities and space and for voices to be heard. And they're all completely legitimate and resources. And they're, yes, those demands, those things need to happen. Society is like, you know, deeply unequal, that inequality is often, you know, stratified along along racialized lines. But those type of transferals can never happen on the interpersonal level that a lot of the social media discourse around privilege seems to be kind of grounded in. So that's why my book, rather than focus on like white privilege, I'm talking about like the redistribution of resources. I'm talking about like, you know, inherited wealth and how that is very stratified along racialized lines often or like distributed along racialized lines I'm talking about like you know being locked out of opportunities um I'm talking about like ways that so those those types of redistribution of resources have to happen but I think the conversation being grounded in this kind of interpersonal transfer of privilege is not effective and won't get us very far beyond social media dynamics and outrage. And then something else that's like very interesting to me as I was thinking about, you know, when Fred Hampton, the um, Chicago leader of the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. when he created this Rainbow Coalition, which was the Black Panthers, the Puerto Rican Young Lords, and then this white Southern working class group called the Young Patriots, who, as I talk about in the book, you know, they had the Confederate flag as their symbol. The Confederate flag is like this symbol of the slave owning South. They're not obvious bedfellows for the Black Panthers, but Hampton kind of had the vision to see that even though the Young Patriots were not affected by racism because they're white, they did experience police. They were like these disenfranchised poor white people who experienced police brutality who experienced like diminished life opportunities because of like the inequalities that are perpetuated perpetuated by capitalism and so rather than castigate them about their privilege he was like let me identify what we have in common and he yeah. you know had the vision to see that if he could do that amongst groups of people that are almost perceived as enemies, 
he could create or that there could be the creation of the type of mass movement that was so um, powerful that its demands couldn't be ignored. Um, and then what I've also found really interesting was what he said about their use of the flag. Obviously, he's like, you know, not supporting the Confederate flag, but he's like, if we can use that to like achieve our aims, yeah. then that's the goal. And then quite soon after that, the young patriots actually renounced their use of the flag themselves out wow. of respect for him and respect for the Black Panthers, not because they were like, you know, threatened with being like called out or like cancelled or anything like that, but actually because they themselves they themselves developed, you know, they, they they saw the error of their ways through working, yeah. through working with with the Panthers. And that seems like a far more effective way of creating change that is not just performative than I think a lot of what we have, what we have now. And I think another thing that I find like a little frustrating about that strand of anti-racism that I'm talking about now is I don't really know what its goals are or what its what its aims are. And because there doesn't seem to, you know, when you look at groups in the past, they have these kind of 10 point plans or mm. they have these, this is, this is our manifesto. This is what we want. We are trying to achieve these five things or these 10 things. And so that's the goal. Whereas now it's kind of hard to know what the goal is apart from a vague, oh, we, we, anti-racism. Yeah. So you can get really waylaid, you know? I think it's all, it's where Black Lives Matter kind of started to hit a wall and, and fall short was it became this thing but didn't have a clear agreed upon here's what we want, here's, here's the change we want initially and could then you know splinter off in all sorts of different directions but it's it it sounds really hippie but i love what you were saying there about fred hampton kind of focusing on the similarities rather than the differences focusing on what what all these different groups had put upon them and experienced rather than rather than why they've they've had it done or or the differences there and one of the things you talk about in the book is collaboration rather than allyship and again it was something that hadn't occurred to me but you kind of talk about how allyship can often include still having beliefs of of racial inferiority like abolitionists being an example and things like that a feeling of i want to help them because they need my help because i'm i'm something else you know and it's it's a really interesting that i hadn't really considered before but was really powerful so yeah how was that kind of to because it's a weird thing to start it it must be tough to start picking apart i don't know stuff that's trying to be positive and trying to push (laughs) in some way trying to push towards change and having to identify which ones seem performative and which ones seem like they actually have an end goal Mm -hmm. so yeah how 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 was that to process it all and go through and (laughs) articulate it My aim is really not to castigate anybody who's like, you know, trying to contribute to like anti-racism and has been taught that the kind of form of allyship that we often see presented is the is the way is the way to go about it. Um, But I wanted to show them maybe just like an alternative way of of approaching it. And another thing that I find quite interesting about social media is I'm like, this is this is kind of like one strand of so the, the voice is kind of presented almost as like, this is like the way we have to do this. I'm like, this is like a very 
particular perspective. Where's the consensus? I didn't sign up to lots of this. There are lots of black voices and lots of black movements that maybe aren't like, you know, pronounced on social media, but they actually have like a very different, they have like long traditions and they have a very different approach to lots of this. So I wanted to just kind of bring some of those ideas and some of those thinkers and some of those voices into this more mainstream conversation. And again, the somebody like Fred Hampton or like Audrey Lord, for instance, again, somebody that I am, you know, talk quite a bit of bit about in the book, and a, a name that you know you see regularly in social kind of social media discourse about about race and and and, and racism and social justice stuff. Angela Davis, who else? Anyway, like a, none of them are demanding this type of allyship that, that that we see. They're far more interested in in coalition and this mm. kind of this creation of of mass movements against kind of like exploitation and, and and inequality. I mean, obviously, those people are all really well known. But something I find quite frustrating about social media is we kind of take these phrases or terms from um, these kind of like thinkers or icons of the past, but then they kind of become untethered from the radical and expansive thinking that generated those terms in the first place. And they become these kind of just reductive, often kind of like mantras that are just repeated. So I was just trying to like link some of that stuff to to, to the kind of, to the more, um, just bring it back to the, some of the more kind of expansive thinking that I think that that, that that informed it. And I realized that I found like, I personally found lots of the discourse around allyship, just like really fucking like patronizing. Like I found it patronizing to me personally and also patronizing to like the prospective ally. Um, it's like, as I say in the book, it's to me, it's not a world making practice. And I'm um, a, a thinker whose work I'm really comforted and inspired by is somebody called Fred Moten, who I also reference um, on the book. Um, he's an, a black American um, academic, like critic and, and, and poet. And he, I quote him in the book where he's like, what does he say? The coalition emerges out of you recognizing that it's fucked up for you in the way that we've already realized that it's fucked up for us. Yeah. And then he's like, this is like one of my favorite quotes. He's like, I don't need your help. I just need you to recognize that this shit is killing you too. However, much more softly, you stupid mother F word. And I'm just like, yes, that's it. I don't need yeah. your help. <laughs> I just need you to recognize that this shit is killing you too. So yeah, that's that to me, the coalition is far more exciting than the allyship proposal, which, and actually this is what I wanted to say, my mind wandered a bit. Um, from it, from the earliest invention of the concept of whiteness as a race and the concept of blackness as a race was this power dynamic that, you know, put this hierarchy that put white as superior, black as inferior. And um, from that, you know, you have the emergence of the kind of idea of like white saviorism, you know, that well-intentioned whites kind of use their privilege to help these unfortunate victims who are actually only in positions of oppression because of this infrastructure of race in the mm. first place and wouldn't like require anything if they, you know, it's just like, it's, it's just a mad paradox. But to me, a lot of the allyship seemed like a continuation of that white savior kind of dynamic and narrative. And when I was Googling 
allyship. I took some of the main tenets of what you saw in this strand of anti-racism that were like, you know, do not expect to be taught or shown. You often hear that being said to prospective allies. Do not expect to be taught or shown. So you can't really ask questions, but Google is your friend. So you can Google your questions. So I took that advice on board and I Googled allyship and the stuff that came up, you know, was like talking about the ally and the victim. And I was just like, big red flag here. And there were things that were saying, oh, the allies needs ally from their place of privilege you know their needs should always be secondary and I was like what type of person is like aroused or by by this idea that they you know suppress their own needs to help these victims and I was like that would be a white savior type of person that is like into this we don't want to be reproducing that dynamic it's far more powerful in the way that Hampton did to for us to think about the ways the environmental crisis, you know, that, that, that we're in, the level of inequality, you know, that, that it, it exists. Look at the ways, obviously, racism as well. It's not to, like, diminish the importance of racism, but it's to draw the connections, connect the dots between, like, racism, inequality and the environmental crisis and see how they all kind of have their origin in the same place. And all of those things affect most of us, all of us actually, um, in different ways. So how can we work together to be powerful enough to actually create change rather than approaching all of our struggles in this atomized way that further pits us against each other? Sorry, that was long. No, 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 no. I I love that. And it made me think of another bit from the book where... um, where you were mentioning there the kind of the helping people who would be helped by the changing of the system is is when you kind of said um I don't care about the the governor of Alabama being racist but that a racist is the governor of Alabama if, mm-hmm. if, if, if that, which which again is 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 great because it kind of yeah it sums up the kind of which way are we looking at it and which part is 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 the problem I guess and there was an another bit that's that, not me by the way that's james baldwin <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. A, another bit again the anger at the lack of of representation of, of of represented races in photo shoots versus the lack of anger at the over representation of those races in sweatshops in m- making the clothes in question and i think it's a weird thing with social media that people are ready to be angry and active and passionate but they don't they're not targeted enough with where they're aiming it. I've I've been talking about it today as we as we as we speak as we're recording this. There's uproar. Uh, um, B- Boris and his mates potentially having a Christmas party last year when everyone was in lockdown. And my argument is number one: there's a million things to be angry at them about that that go above that on the list. And number two: that sounds like the driest party I can imagine. Like. <laughs> There's no, there's no people I'd want to be throwing a party less than than that crowd. So it's strange what we kind of find as the here's our outrage rather than all of the deaths and one of the highest death rates and mismanagements in Europe and all this kind of thing. Yet a party, oh, how dare they? I wasn't allowed you know a party. What, as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, it's because maybe some things feel too big like you can't even like really focus your anger on them because it just seems so big and all-consuming but then if it's like focused into one quite simple straightforward event then you can express the anger through through that you know but I do think when we do that we have to be very vigilant that we're not expending our anger 
We have to be careful what it is we are demanding, you know, because you might invest all of your energy into demanding this thing that is just like actually quite performative and inconsequential. Meanwhile, letting God knows what yeah, ex- fly under the radar. Exactly. I, I spoke to someone earlier and they were saying, do you think they should all be s- sacked? And I was like, no, they should be voted out. Sacked is placating. S- sacked is going, well, they've been punished. Uh, let's move on. It's like, no, they should be voted out. It shouldn't be a, a sacked and some other faceless person has moved in their place. Right. I saw Keir Starmer yesterday being like, they just, I, I can't remember, I think he was like saying Boris just needs to admit it or whatever, whatever Boris needs to do. And then he needs to apologise. And I'm just like, what? Is that our goal? An apology? An apology? This is crazy. This is like bonkers. Yeah, it's mad. <laughs> um, well, th- there's loads of things I, I, I want to talk about in the book, but I'm also conscious I don't want to just say can you give us this history lesson now um and i want people to go and read the book and and take it all in so before we go on to more and before we wrap things up i want to know what was kind of your route into activism and into the world of activism and reading about or participating in from being that the the only black girl your friends had met in in ireland what was that path, I guess? I think that's a key part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that in itself is a key part of it. But I also feel uh, maybe it's like something that even predates that. So like my, um, so yeah, I was born in Dublin, but I moved to Atlanta at like as soon as I was born as a very young baby. My mom is Irish, white Irish, and my dad is um, Nigerian. My dad wanted to study in Morehouse, which is a HBCU, um, mm-hmm. a historically black college. And he went, to, yeah, and he, he wanted to study in this particular one, um, you know, that kind of like Martin Luther King had gone to and stuff. It's a really um, important institution in black America. Um, so I spent like my very young years in Atlanta while he was studying there kind of with my like extended Nigerian family like a lot of them had moved to Atlanta and Atlanta is like a very black city and I think I was in quite like a a a black political household my grandfather was also like a high court judge in in Nigeria and um I was just in this yeah black and I think political environment but I was very very young you know this is like up till I was four but I do think you know you kind of absorb stuff like I remember like my dad had stuff like Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa so I would see like the spines of those books you Mm. know like on the bookshelf obviously I wasn't like reading them but I think even that title is like you know that's putting a message into your head from a young age then we went back to Ireland and um so, I, yeah, I, I've had a lot of contrast, a lot of contrast in my life, I guess, with race and I guess also with like class as well in that like my Nigerian grandparents were very wealthy and they were like basically funding my life or my dad's life in Atlanta. So we had quite a, a, a charmed life. Then that that dried up my family's quite dysfunctional yeah. <laughs> that dried up and um we moved back to Ireland and then like we had no money and I lived in like a very a very deprived part of of Dublin mm-hmm. in the 1980s when Dublin Ireland was like a very poor country so I was in yeah. a very deprived part of a very poor country um so the contrast between like my life in Atlanta and then my life in inner city Dublin could not have been more kind of more different in terms of like race but also in terms of like kind of 
you know, like, yeah, wealth and and class as well. So I remember um, thinking as soon as we moved back to Ireland, um, I, you know, kind of started to experience quite explicit racism. You know, I remember just being called like that the n-word like as soon as we'd gotten back and I'd never heard it before I didn't like know what it meant and then those type of that type of explicit racism just being a very like you know common common feature of my life and then just feeling incredibly isolated my dad also went back to my dad was just like he wasn't having it for him (laughs) so he went back to Nigeria which is nice for him (laughs) Um, but yeah I we, we we were there so that was just kind of my um my experience is growing up. And I think that made me, I was really looking for answers as to, I guess, why what was happening <laughs> to me was happening. Mm. And um, I started reading a lot of black, like history and literature from like a really young age. And I started to kind of, I guess, identify my personal experiences as part of like a kind of broader or located within kind of like a broader, like black struggle I guess I was like a a, quite politicized child and then but something else also happened I think I went back to Nigeria when I was seven and again went and saw the, the the wealth of my grandparents and I saw that in the context of the further poverty in Nigeria you know I saw I remember going like driving around in my grandparents car which was really plush and they had a chauffeur which is far more normal in Nigeria you know, ordinary in Nigeria than it is necessarily here, but it's still part of like a particular kind of like class in Nigeria. And I guess the contrast between the wealth of my grandparents and my life in Ireland, I was just like, this is crazy. But then also the wealth of my grandparents and how I could see the vast majority of people in Nigeria were also, you know, actually that had a really profound effect on me at a really young age. And I think it's, yeah, those experiences of racism and also seeing kind of poverty and wealth and inequality at a young age, just, yeah, like really profoundly affected me. Yeah. Yeah. It it makes perfect sense. And it feels like it'd be hard to not have had, (laughs) you know, a profound effect upon you. Um, (laughs) Before I kind of wrap things up, you touched earlier upon looking at all of the problems rather than trying to divide them up looking at, at, at climate change and racism and and and, and classism and all these other things and the thing that comes at the top of all of that is capitalism and you've got a beautiful part in the book where you say the structures our current capitalist structures are mirroring the levels of of a slave ship and rather than making it more inclusive we need to destroy the whole ship and and build something new from the timber so how was that to was there a moment of realization that you that you noticed the kind of the mirroring of 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 how we divide things up at the moment and how things were indeed divided on on the levels of a slave ship so that metaphor actually comes from another thinker that i'm so deeply inspired by um he's a yoruba a nigerian i guess philosopher post-activist called bio akomalafe and um when he used that metaphor of like modernity being like the slave ship that like really really resonated with me i'd already thought a lot about how again when you look at some of the movements of the past they were less they were kind of more like what is the use of being included in a system that we identify as 
exploitative. Um, so our inclusion is more so that we can exploit others, continue, yeah. operate in a system that will continue to exploit others. Well, the whole seat at a table, yeah, seat exactly. at the table type thing, rather than why is that table exist? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's become even more pressing because the because of what is happening, you know, like with the environment and with the climate, like those exploitative systems are also like unsustainable in terms of like the 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 earth can't sustain it although i feel like the earth will probably itself be fine it just yes. like it'll, our species will get be. rid of us yeah. Yeah, yeah right so i'm not just like oh diversity and inclusion is like irrelevant i'm not of, of course i'm not of course. saying that but um i think we also just need to be very mindful of what it is that we are focusing our energies in like you know being included in and how can we actually think about having more just and less exploitative systems than the ones that are currently than the ones that are currently in place you know there's people who talk about um the destructiveness of having like infinite growth you know as a as as a model of a measurement and model of progress in that like that that's unsustainable so i think we just have to like look at what our what our goals are and how we're measuring quote unquote development and and uh, progress and again i think you, you 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 talk a lot in the book about the right ways of doing things as well about social media being a sedative rather than lighter fuel on the situation and I didn't say that, but I wish I had. I no, like your description. I, I, that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I put in, in brackets there. I've not quoted that, so just in, in case I accredit it to you. But it, it, no, it has yours. become that. I think. <laughs> it, it has become that, and it's it's what is worrying. It's kind of as we said that. Well, as long as we get an apology, there is that element of as long as I've <laughs> tweeted my opinion, you know, it gets it out of your system, and you speak be- beautifully about performative outrage versus actual grassroots community focused activism um of the past and you give examples there of of how changes were actually made not necessarily quickly but directly rather Mm -hmm. than it all diluting into a social media world so do you see that as the kind of the route forward on on all of these these things yeah in many ways but like it's also difficult because like it doesn't like you know that kind of grassroots heavy lifting slower work doesn't have the same immediate gratification Mm. as social media and it's not like people can necessarily like see immediately what you're doing and what you've said and then come to you and ask you to talk about it and to be like the so yeah I like I, I think social media is like really powerful in lots of ways and I actually think like the reason a lot of these issues have come so high on the agenda is actually because the because of like you know the volume of stuff on social media but i just think we have to be like super aware of its limitations and mm-hmm. also it's um not only its limitations but like actually it's the the ways that it kind of warps and distorts things so if we used it as part of something and we saw you know we kind of identify its use in generating awareness in maybe like galvanizing big groups of people but we realized it can only be a starting point rather than a beginning middle and and end i think that would be really helpful (laughs) it has to be a tool in the fight rather than the fight itself 
as such has to be yeah. part of it rather than oh here's where it's all taking place it's like no that's that's not where it's taking place and that's actually really detrimental yeah. you know so it's a bit of a poison chalice because yeah. i think it's really useful but then it's also kind of potentially quite destructive as well yeah completely well to i won't take up too much more of your time again i recommend people g- grab the book because yeah i absolutely adored it um I kind of want to end by asking what's next. And that feels broad considering our conversation. So I mean that for you personally and kind of, I guess, on on the grander scheme, which is a bigger and harder question. But yeah, you can answer either, really. So I'm, I'm, about to fin- I'm trying to finish my PhD, which keeps getting delayed. Yeah. Because I keep writing books and having children. <laughs> what's your PhD in? Um, it's, it's actually looking at the construction of racial categories and right. then using the category mixed race as a kind of as a as a as a kind of case study to look mm-hmm. at the constructed nature of racial categories right. um i'm in the final year just need to finish that and then i would I, I would really like to um to yeah to to write fiction i feel like fiction is my is my first love and the most profound truths actually about the human condition yeah. uh, can be found can be found in fiction and something that I write about in the book is like um you know when those anti-racist reading lists were going around in 2020 I was like you know if you do if you are going to use books as your kind of as, as a tool for learning about black life and you want to kind of understand the interiority of like some black characters through reading also like read like black fiction rather Mm. than just these anti-racist titles you know some of the most some of the best writers of fiction um and the human condition you know also just happen to be also just happen to be black so it doesn't always have to be you know kind of explicitly this is anti-racism you know um so yeah I guess I I just I want to yeah I want to I want to write fiction and something else I talk about in the book as well is um I say read 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 and dance (laughs) And there's a quote that says from Emma Goldman um, that says a revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. So, yeah, I have a kind of dance thing in the works. I love it. I love it. That sounds great. I'm also um, one last thing. I'm also working uh, with a group of people. We're just kind of getting it together now on like kind of yes stuff stuff to do with the with the environment because up until now my um, work you know my emphasis had had very much been on on race and with this Mm -hmm. book you see I'm starting to kind of expand on that and I want to focus more on like kind of what I can do how I can contribute to yeah what's what's going on with this this old earth of ours. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm excited for all that's ahead. I'll let you get back to to house stuff and and finishing a PhD really at some point. <laughs> so um, yeah, I appreciate your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Emma DeBiri. I can't recommend you getting that book enough. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. I'm going to be back actually on Friday with a, a, a bonus episode. Writer and kind of show creator Rob Williams. You're going to enjoy that. That's out on Friday. So and until then, stay safe 
and stay sane. Ta-ta.